Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Ohio is at the forefront of the U.S. opioid epidemic. We led the U.S. in opioid-related deaths in 2015 with 3,368. And in 2016, we had a 36% increase, bringing the total to 4,149. That is projected right now. Mayors are in a unique position to rally their communities in fighting against the opioid epidemic. Here today to talk about what the leaders in our state are doing to address the epidemic in 23 of our largest cities in Ohio is Carrie McCarthy, the executive director of the Ohio Mayor's Alliance. So Carrie, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. So beginning last year, your group began surveying your membership to determine what's being done in our state to fight the opioid epidemic. So what have you learned? Well, we've learned a lot, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I want to start off just by thanking you and the work that Cover 2 does to help people like me who are thinking about policy solutions and policy ideas. Um, the work that you've done here to bring positive ideas, good ideas, constructive ideas forward around this really difficult public policy challenge has been helpful to me, and I know it's been helpful to many other people who are thinking about how to tackle this issue. So I just want to thank you for, for the work that you do here. Thank you. Uh, You know, yeah, the Mayor's Alliance came together last year for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was to help be innovative and thoughtful uh, and to contribute to the policymaking conversation that that occurs in Columbus, where our state legislature is. Um, We uh, really felt that this issue is uh, not only affecting our communities on the ground uh, and our local law enforcement and the challenges that our EMS teams face, Uh, But it is obviously a problem that affects the entire state, and it has residual implications uh, beyond just the law enforcement and health and human services side of the equation. It affects everything from um, uh, workforce development, uh, job creation. It has a very significant impact all across the spectrum. Uh, So, you know, many of the mayors and many of our state leaders want to focus on job creation and economic development, uh, and that's critically important. But if we don't tackle this issue, uh, if we don't get ahead of this issue, if we don't confront this crisis and stop it in its tracks, uh, we're never going to be able to really have success in these other areas that are so critical to our future. So uh, that being said, um, yes, the mayors uh, came together earlier this year 
uh, as we were contemplating um, a proactive policy agenda and asked uh, for some research to better understand what local communities were doing to confront uh, the, uh, the opioid epidemic in Ohio. Um, from that point forward, we uh, uh, issued this report, uh, which is called uh, On the Front Lines. Uh, it can be found at our website, ohiomayorsalliance.org, under the research section. Uh, and really, it was done to, to not necessarily be a comprehensive look at everything that was occurring in our communities, uh, but really sort of a landscape scan to just understand what are the emerging trends and what things, uh, what strategies should be shared with, within our mayors, within our group of mayors, to cross-pollinate good ideas. Uh, and so that really started the ball rolling for the Mayor's Alliance to get involved uh, in this issue and uh, to help come to the table with constructive solutions. And, uh, and we found a, we found a lot of interesting information. Yeah, you've outlined quite a few of them here in your in your uh, this document. Um, so, would you care to share just some of those with us? What some of the counties are doing and some of the individual cities? Yeah. So we so we found a couple emerging trends uh, in in all of our communities, and and we have uh, mayors in uh, really every corner of the state. Um, we have a, a relatively diverse. Um, a section of communities from, you know, our large cities to large suburbs. Uh, we also have what I call or what some call legacy cities, which are, you know, places like Springfield, which are the county seats and have sort of an industrial base. Um, and so we have a pretty diverse collection of communities. And so we found some uh, three, I think, emerging trends uh, in, in, in our work. You know, one, uh, this was earlier this year, uh, we found that uh, in almost every case, local law enforcement uh, were equipped with Narcan and, and, and providing Narcan uh, uh, on the street and delivering sometimes multiple doses uh, uh, at a time. Um, we That's also, encouraging. Yes. Um, now, the one note I'll say is we also found, and again, this was back in May, uh, so, uh, you know, um, a little while ago, we also found that, you know, with Narcan, there was, um, there was not consistency with how Narcan was being funded. Um, some communities were applying for grants provided by the state. Some communities were uh, applying for federal grants. Other communities were paying for the um, Narcan out of their municipal budgets. Um, so, and not every one of our communities had equipped their officers with Narcan. So, while that was an emerging trend, something that we saw pretty quickly, uh, it definitely wasn't universal across all our member communities. And, and I'll come, we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. The other thing that we found were uh, something I know you've been a great advocate for, which is the quick response teams, uh, the combination of uh, treatment uh, professionals and law enforcement uh, coming together after an overdose to try to find a way to get um, that individual into treatment. Uh, so uh, that was something that we saw. It took a lot of different forms. Um, they were called different things uh, from the DART program in Lucas County to the quick response teams to the rapid response teams. Um, but they were all essentially trying to do the same thing, which is bring together law enforcement and treat, treatment professionals to try to get addicts into treatment as quickly as possible when, when, uh, uh, when, it's, when they're ready. So that was the second thing. And then the third thing that we found uh, was um, a degree of regional intergovernmental cooperation. Um, many communities, Summit County is a, good is a great example, frankly, of a, of a really important um, intergovernmental task force that brings together uh, uh, local law enforcement. So you have, you know, law enforcement, you have various jurisdictions of law enforcement within one county. Uh, you have um, uh, treatment professionals, you have the coroner's office, you have, uh, 
you know, a variety of different jurisdictions that have responsibility in this crisis. And what these intergovernmental task forces did, uh, what they do is to bring together to help share information across jurisdictions, uh, uh, you know, across uh, sectors to really help the community understand how to tackle this crisis. So those were the three things uh, that, that we found sort of as emerging trends as we looked across the various communities. So, and they're uh, very commonly referred to as opiate task force. Mm-hmm. And we have them, of course, in Summit County. Cuyahoga County has a very active one. And yeah, yeah, those, uh, they've, they've made a huge difference here in Northeast Ohio, that's for sure. That's right. And there were, you know, there's some great examples. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, Summit County, there's some great examples in Hamilton County. Um, some communities, you know, you, you saw some cooperation occurring. You saw some communication occurring, but not as formalized as, let's say, Summit County's task force. Um, so we saw there was real opportunity to, to strengthen these intergovernmental teams uh, to make sure that the flow of information was uh, happening more quickly. In your report, you also mentioned medication-assisted treatment. What did you derive from that, from your study there? Yeah, you know, I think the, 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 the importance of it can't be understated, um, can't be overstated, excuse me. Um, um, you know, this, uh, the advocacy role that the Mayor's Alliance played, and this was sort of another outgrowth of uh, the work that the mayors have done together, the conversation around uh, federal uh, health care reform. Um, uh, in, you know, that was occurring as we were doing this research work. And the mayors, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, were very concerned about the loss of treatment dollars because of uh, potential to roll back the expanded Medicaid coverage under Obamacare. Uh, so, um, so one byproduct of this research work was uh, that the mayors engaged federally and advocated uh, against uh, cutting Medicaid that would have meant uh, the loss of treatment dollars uh, in communities all across the state. Uh, in Ohio, treatment uh, Medicaid covers about 50% of the total uh, uh, expense of treatment. Um, that, that is huge. And um, to, to cut back on Medicaid at a time in which Ohio is the epicenter for uh, the uh, opioid epidemic uh, makes very little sense. Um, treatment dollars... Um, help, as you know, and as your listeners know, help in a number of ways. But if we don't have treatment dollars, this cycle will perpetuate itself and we'll, it will get worse and worse and worse. We have to have treatment to get people all off of this cycle of addiction uh, and into healthy, healthier lives. No question about it. Um, so you've learned quite a bit that communities can do um, to make a difference, to, to begin fighting the opioid epidemic. Um, and across the board, there's some great things happening. But is there any coordination or is there any over, overarching uh, effort to bring this together and, and be a central focal point to, to communicate all these great things that are going on? Yeah, and I, I think the, the one of our, and that is sort of the, the, the primary finding that we, that, we, that we came to as we looked across the various communities that were dealing with this crisis. Um, there needs, in our view, there needs to be a much more centralized uh, and coordinated approach uh, to handling this crisis. Um, you know, just looking at the numbers, for example, you know, we averaged, um, <coughs> excuse me, 4,100 overdose deaths last year. That's an average of 11 people a day. This is, by all accounts, a mass casualty event. It is a public health crisis. 
um, the mayors who are on the front lines. Uh, their law enforcement professionals who are out there on the front lines every day understand this point. Uh, this is an emergency, whether it's declared or not. Uh, this is a, an emergency, and um, to help ensure that uh, information flows quickly between the jurisdictions that are responsible for this, uh, there needs to be much more centralized process uh, to create um, a, a, a much better understanding of the crisis and inform policymakers for how they can craft solutions that will be effective. So, so we, we absolutely uh, believe there needs to be a more, more, more centralized uh, approach uh, to treat this crisis like the, emer- like the emergency that it is. There's six states that have actually declared state emergencies over the opioid epidemic. Those are Arizona, Alaska, Maryland, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Florida. And in fact, we've had the opportunity to interview uh, Jay Butler, Dr. Jay Butler from Alaska, and he shared with us in depth what declaring a state of emergency over the opioid epidemic has done for them in Alaska. But we don't necessarily have to declare it here in Ohio a state of emergency to get some of these benefits from that. So let's talk just a little bit about some of the things that we could do as a state, maybe before even declaring a state of emergency. Well, uh, and I appreciate that. We, the Mayor's Alliance, sent a letter to Governor Kasich uh, making seven recommendations. And the, and the first recommendation uh, that we suggested was, was just that, to activate the Emergency Operations Command Center in the state of Ohio. Uh, we have, uh, this facility was set up for uh, epidemics, for public health crises. Uh, it was activated during the H1N1 scare a few years ago. Uh, and it's in operation now. It's not. It wouldn't be a new structure. Uh, but really, what we advocated for was to uh, create an incident command structure, as they did in Alaska, uh, and to really help uh, bring together the various sectors uh, and agencies of government in a much more coordinated way, so that the, the state of Ohio can make more informed, more effective policy decisions. And um, so, so we don't necessarily need the declaration of emergency. Um, to activate the Emergency Operations Command Center. Um, uh, and we think, uh, you know, we think that, you know, taking that productive step would be tremendously helpful for better understanding information more quickly. And I'll, I'll give you an example of why I think that's important. Uh, earlier this spring, the Columbus Dispatch uh, uh, surveyed and, and interviewed and did, I think they did a public records request for um, all 88 county coroners. And what they were trying to do this spring was to try to understand what the 2016 overdose death rate was. Um, they published a report, I think, in, in May or April, might have been in April, uh, earlier this year, uh, indicating that we had lost, I think, 40, over 4,100 lives in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, that, was, that report happened right as we were starting this, and it was a real wake-up call for us. It was a wake-up call in the sense that we shouldn't need the Columbus Dispatch to go county by county uh, through public records requests to help us find the most basic statistic that should inform policymakers' reaction to this crisis, which is overdose death rate. Um, that was a real wake-up call for us, that we needed to get information more quickly, more effectively to help inform the policy decisions that are being made at the state level. Um, I will say that just last two weeks ago, the state issued its its report uh, indicating the overall uh, overdose death rate in the state of Ohio for 2016. 
Um, that was very, um, very, very important report. Very good that they did it. I think the fact that it came eight months into 2017 to report on 2016 statistics uh, is a problem. And we need to have information much more quickly. We need it to be centralized across jurisdiction, across sector, um, and it needs to and it needs to be put out publicly so the public understands the magnitude of the crisis, and so that policymakers can make more effective decisions. Um, this report that the state of Ohio issued, I'll, I'll make one last point, came after the state operating budget in which $170 million was spent in a positive way on very good things. Um, but, you know, when you spend $170 million on, on the opioid crisis, but you really don't know the underlying data and metrics, you know, that's, that's a problem. And, and we as policymakers need to think about how we get information more quickly, more effectively, so we can make policy solutions that are effective and that are confronting this crisis head on. So that leads me to the next point in your letter to Governor Kasich, and that is uh, to point two is to mobilize and improve the upward flow of critical data from local communities. How would you propose to do that? Right. Well, you know, I think the first thing is, you know, leverage the existing infrastructure that we already have. Uh, we talked about the local task forces that are already in place, making sure that those task forces have you know, a, a line of communication at the with the emergency operations command structure and the incident command structure, uh, to, so they're getting key data, so that that data is being reported publicly more quickly, uh, more regularly. Um, you know, where there where there isn't that existing task force structure, I think the mayors play a unique role to leverage their platform as mayors. Uh, you know, in many big cities, the mayors command you know a, a tremendous amount of media attention. They have the ability to navigate. Uh, both, um, you know, public sector partners and private sector partners to bring people to the table in a way that, um, you know, uh, can't be done by, you know, other elected officials who participate in this process. Um, uh, so the mayors play a unique role at the local level to bring uh, together key partners uh, to help making sure that they're reporting up the chain of command uh, to the to the command structure and that they're at the table and that they're sharing information. So, the mayors, you know, really play a unique role in this process. And um, what what they outlined to the governor was, you know, their their willingness to play that role and their willingness to come to the table and help do their part at the regional level to make sure that it's, you know, synchronized with the state's response in a way that can be effective. In your next point, I, I really like your next point as well, um, because we've got 88 counties, right, right. in the state of Ohio. <clears throat> And some of them really, like Summit County, are very fortunate to have a lot of resources mm -hmm. to address the opioid epidemic. And then others are resource starved. So your next point, establish a mechanism to facilitate mutual aid between jurisdictions. In other words, share resources. Right. Comment on that. Yeah, so there was a couple things that we found as we, as we talked to, to local practitioners on the ground and we read, you know, Adams Board Community Action Plans. You know, when, when there is a treatment bed shortage, uh, and as you know this from, from, and you know this better than most, you know, when, when a user is ready to get treatment uh, and there is a wait time for treatment uh, capacity, that is a real problem because that desire to get into treatment is critical. The window closes very, very quickly. That's exactly right. And so a lot of, a lot of the counties we saw, and, and you'll see, you know, there are treatment bed shortages. Um, but in the, in the circumstance in which there's a treatment bed shortage in one county, but a treatment bed availability in the next county, there's got to be a way to communicate that. 
So if we have a, a, a user who is ready for treatment in Summit County um, uh, but can't get into a treatment facility right away, but there is a, um, but there is a treatment bed availability in a neighboring county, um, jurisdictions should be able to communicate those. And there should be a mechanism to sort out how we can get somebody into treatment, how we can make sure we optimize our resources to the best that we can. It shouldn't be combined by a political jurisdiction. Um, the second thing we, we, we saw and we observed is, you know, Narcan um, has an expiration date. Um, it can only be used up to a certain point and then it expires. Um, and this, w- this was a problem that we, that we saw in that if a community had a, an excess of Narcan, uh, but it was about to hit its expiration date, um, the rules right now don't allow um, Narcan to be shared across jurisdictions. So uh, if in the circumstance where Narcan was about to uh, was coming up on its its expiration date, uh, in that one, community A wasn't going to be able to use it in time before it hit before it hit its expiration date. There should be a mechanism to make sure that it can be shared with other communities who are in need, uh, rather than to have it sort of be you know uh, to go unused. Expire. Uh, yeah. So 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 there were a number of circumstances where we saw there could be some real benefit in figuring out some structure to help communities you know, uh, uh, share resources and, again, optimize uh, the tools that we have to confront this crisis. So during this past summer at the federal level, there was a lot of discussion of funding and, and the budget and with uh, really in the context of repeal, replace and all of those discussions, a lot of budget issues came up and, and funding for programs is always a big issue. So reviewing all available opportunities to secure funding and resources is another part of your recommendation, a major part of your recommendation. That's right. Share with us your point here. Well, this is something that came from uh, Alaska. Um, you know, they, uh, when they declared emergency, one of the first things they did was to, um, to, to, to review across agency every opportunity for federal funding. Um, when you look at the web of funding opportunities, it exists. There's, there's funding opportunities out there. Uh, for resources to help with addiction treatment um, and, uh, and law enforcement um, uh, mechanisms. But it is a very complicated web of streams of funding. And so what and what we think we'd like to see or like to at least have some conversations about is, you know, how can we leverage the um, capacity of state government to help local government figure out where those funding streams are? Uh, many local communities, um, and not just necessarily in the big cities, but if especially in smaller communities, they have very limited capacity to do grant writing, to understand where to apply for grants, um, to understand where there are opportunities to get resources into their community. And so not only do we envision in this recommendation the state, uh, you know, reviewing all potential funding streams at the federal level to get down to the state and local levels, but also providing some assistance to the communities who have limited resources and sometimes in the greatest need of help. Uh, providing grant writing support to local communities. Small communities in southern Ohio, which has been a, you know, a particularly hard hit by this area, have very few resources. Um, you know, staffing levels at some of these um, Adams boards and some of these county commissioner's office and sheriff's office and, um, you know, uh, city halls, they have very limited capacity. And so understanding where to apply for a grant, understanding how to effectively write a grant are all things that we think if, this, if the state wanted to engage in, could provide a really meaningful 
a contribution to some of these local communities. So many of these federal programs that were put in place years and years and decades ago in some cases um, have some, when it, when it comes to the opioid epidemic, they have some unintended hurdles that are oftentimes placed in front of you. So assessing all Medicaid policies in particular relating to detox and treatment, you've got a line in there, point number five addresses that. Can you share with us your point there? Yeah, there, there, you know, there has, there, the, the one thing that we'd like to see, you know, is any barriers that exist to treatment in the private sector um, need to be assessed and, and reviewed. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, we saw some uh, indications of were that, you know, treatment providers are essentially uh, private nonprofits and um, not all of them accept Medicaid. Um, some of them, don't accept Medicaid because of the paperwork. There are some there are some uh, pre-qualification or pre pre uh, application requirements that can be burdensome. Uh, some don't like to accept Medicaid because uh, it's cumbersome. Um, that's a barrier to treatment. Um, in some of these communities, we saw, um, especially for detox detox services, uh, ambulatory detox. Um, there 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 wasn't a service exi- that existed because you know some of those private nonprofit provider didn't didn't accept uh, Medicaid dollars. So um, uh, so really just taking a second closer look in state at, um, you know, where there might be barriers in the process with providers and, and how do we how do we overcome those barriers? So closely related to that is point number six, and that is to leverage the regulatory authority of uh, the Department of Insurance. Right. Right. So um, in some cases, private insurance uh, doesn't provide um, as much coverage for treatment as uh, Medicaid. Um, So in in the state of Ohio, you can't offer insurance coverage without going through the regulatory apparatus of the Department of Insurance. And so, you know, really what we wanted to at least have a conversation around is what can what how can the Department of Insurance in the state of Ohio leverage its regulatory authority to make sure that addiction treatment and mental health services are being provided on par with, uh, with the sort of coverage that's being offered through Medicaid. So how do we get to parity around, you know, physical harm as to, uh, for insurance coverage as we do with uh, addiction and mental health um, coverage for, for the private sector insurance? I mentioned earlier on the podcast, Medicaid pays for about 50% of the total uh, uh, amount of treatment uh, out there for addiction. Um, you know, we, we'd like to know and we'd like to see and we'd like to work with the state to better understand, you know, what role the private insurance market can play to provide more coverage uh, on treatment, which is, as we talked about, critically, critically important in tackling this crisis. So I particularly like the seventh point of uh, your seven points of recommendation in your letter to uh, Governor Kasich. And that is create a charitable vehicle to secure private sector resources. So reaching out to the private sector, the private community, and, and uh, engaging them. How would this work? Well, first of all, let me say this was an idea that came out of something that I, I think you had um, some involvement with, which was the Know Your Risks campaign in Cuyahoga County. Um, that's something we noted in, in the report that we talked about earlier as a model for bringing private sector resources to bear. And what the Know Your Risks campaign was, essentially, and you can talk about this better than I can, frankly, um, was really a public awareness campaign that brought 
you know, a private, I think a private advertising agency yep. who did some pro bono marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you had um, uh, the network televisions come together. Uh, you had um, you know, PSAs. You had uh, newspapers coming together all to promote this Know Your Risks campaign, which is around education and awareness uh, on the threat of uh, opioid addiction. Um, so the idea of this came from this model, which was, you know, this was a great example of, you know, government, uh, private and public sector coming together to help launch a campaign to educate the public about the risks of opioid addiction. We see this as potentially even going a step further. You know, in fact, just this week, uh, last week, excuse me, um, former presidents in a bipartisan way came together uh, to do exactly this, which is to raise uh, private sector resources and funding to to help support the relief ef- efforts uh, from uh, Hurricane Harvey in Texas, and and now I'm sure will be uh, hur- Hurricane uh, Irma in in Florida. Mm. Um, this is a great example, you know. You know, so step back and think about it. You know, the governor, uh, gubernatorial candidates, uh, mayoral candidates raise millions of dollars in fundraising to fund their campaigns. Um, there's no reason that same effort couldn't be brought to bear. To raise millions of dollars to help support this 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 epidemic, um, and think about scale for a second. You know, the the attorney general's office just uh, provided a, um, a a great grant opportunity for local governments. Um, it was a a three million dollar grant program to help communities start these quick response teams and to help them start the DART program, which is another uh, similar program. Um, that was three million dollars, forty grants. There's no reason. There's no reason that if the mayors uh, and the governor and others came together to raise $10, $20 million, that money couldn't be put to use in an effective way to help confront this crisis. So um, so that's really the thinking behind the last one, which is, you know, this is an all-hands-on-deck moment for policymakers. Um, it's an all-hands-on-deck moment for Ohio, both people inside government who are trying to find solutions to this, whether it's at the local level or at the state level, and the private sector, as I talked about at the beginning of the program. This issue, in one way or another, affects almost everything uh, in the state of Ohio. And if we don't get our arms around it, and if we don't confront it in its tracks, uh, we're not going to be able to to be successful as a state. So we think there's a real appetite in the private sector to help support this effort. Uh, And if it's designated as a charitable organization, which I assume it probably would, a C3 of some sort, you know, the private sector has has incentive to contribute to it and take advantage of of you know the, the the tax implications for it. So. So we just think there's a real opportunity to, to bring more resources in, in to, to bear on this crisis, and, and this is one, one of many ways to do it. In preparing for this interview today, Kerry, um, one of the questions that I put together was, can you think of a reason why a state hard hit by the opioid epidemic, such as Ohio, would not want to declare a state of emergency? But today, what you've done is put forth really a compelling case for um, moving forward with all of the concepts and the ideas uh, uh, and advantages, if you will, of declaring a, a state of emergency, irrespective of whether you do that or not. I think that's right. I think that's right. There, there, and let me be clear. I mean, there has been there's been some great work that's been done at the legislative level. Um, the governor's office and his opioid um, addiction task force team which is a cabinet-level agency activated to try to break down uh, those um, agency silos and help share information. So, so there has been a tremendous amount of work. And I, I'd be remiss not to mention the governor's own advocacy 
to preserve Medic the expansion of Medicaid. I, again, I cannot stress how important that is in this crisis, and the governor deserves credit for not only expanding Medicaid, uh, but also fighting to keep it. Um, That's critical. So, 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 just to be clear, there, there's been some great work that's been done. Um, but what we saw in 2015, the numbers in 2015, um, you know, accelerating through 2016, a 36% increase, I think you mentioned at the top of the, the hour, the discussion um, from 2015 to 2016. It's not clear where those trend lines are at this point in 2017. Um, there's a chance it, it you know, I think the governor's office um, mentioned that, you know, potentially leveling off. Uh, we don't know. Um, I think there's some real concerns about fentanyl, this this synthetic that's being um, added into heroin to increase the lethality of it um, is concerning. And the, the real concern is that that is now starting to creep into more recreational drugs like marijuana and cocaine. Um, and if that if that occurs, that could be very dangerous. And we could see the number spike even further. Uh, we're really concerned about that. We I, just talking to the mayor of Dayton who said that they found a batch of marijuana that was laced with fentanyl two weeks ago. Um, so you're starting to see it creep into these recreational drugs, uh, and, and that is a real concern. And so what I think we're trying to figure out is, you know, how can the mayors, how can county, how can county officials, how can the uh, the state officials all work together in a much more coordinated and comprehensive way to stop this crisis in its tracks uh, and t- start to reverse some of these numbers and start to make sure that um, you know this drug crisis is. Um, uh, given the the attention that it needs uh, and treated like the emergency that it is. So, Kerry, I've got one last question for you, and that is if the Trump administration goes through with declaring the opioid epidemic a national emergency uh, health crisis as it claims it's going to, what does that mean for the state? Does that change the game for the state? Yeah, it, I think it could. It's it's difficult to to really understand. This is a unique declaration of emergency the, the thinking, though, is that uh, if the, the federal government provides resources and funding to states that are hardest hit, then a state declaration of emergency could become much more relevant. Um, and it, by, by having a, a state declare an emergency, that could, depending on what the Trump administration does, uh, put us in a prime position to draw down federal resources uh, to help support and confront this crisis. So um, prior to the Trump administration's declaration of emergency, the discussion around whether or not the state should declare an emergency was really about what federal resources would be available. Uh, I think the Kasich administration contended, if I understand it correctly, uh, that de- declaring an emergency wouldn't necessarily put us in line uh, to draw down any emergency relief funds. Um, but if the Trump administration follows through uh, and does provide resources to states that are hardest hit, that could fundamentally change the equation. Final thoughts, Kerry? Well, I, you know, I think, you know, despite the challenges, you know, I'm optimistic um, that we are going to get um, our, our arms around this crisis. Uh, it, is, it is a difficult public policy challenge, um, and there's no silver bullet. But I do think, and the last thing I'll say is, uh, while it was steadily gaining in terms of the numbers over 2015 and 16, it really hit uh, an accelerated pitch, you know, this year and and last year. And it I, I think it caught policymakers by surprise and leaders by surprise. Um, 
But I think that people are awakened to how serious this crisis is um, and um, are. And I, so that gives me optimism that there's going to be, um, you know, some real um, effective action uh, to help to help stop this crisis in its tracks. I think the declaration of emergency by President Trump a month ago was constructive. I think the task force that he assigned to review this uh, had some good recommendations. Um, I'm excited to hopefully see some action behind that. Um, it's been a month. I'm hopeful we'll see some action behind that national declaration of a national emergency. Uh, but despite the challenges, I'm optimistic that we're going to start making some headway and, and we're going to get this thing turned around. Okay. Well, thank you for joining us today, Kerry. Thank you. Okay. We've been joined today by Kerry McCarthy, the Executive Director of the Ohio Mayor's Alliance. Kerry and his team have brought a perspective on the front lines, and they're bringing it to the governor's mansion. So it's become clear, they've said, that a more coordinated and comprehensive strategy between all levels of government is urgently needed. Next week, he'll be meeting with the governor's team to discuss that strategy. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.